welcome to the Fabrice Garrier Show, a podcast about the future, where we explore some of the unique ideas that are going to shape different industries in different places in the next 20, 30 years of our lives. My guest today has worked in the political realm as well as the philanthropic realm, and we both explore what does the future of philanthropy looks like? And how can we fund projects and ideas and things to create a better system and a better world? I've learned such an incredible amount of of knowledge from Roland Kennedy and his wisdom as to how can philanthropy be more vital and responsive to the needs of people on the ground and what are the complexities, tensions, and opportunities This is such a fascinating conversation uh, into the industry of philanthropy and looking at his insights and his vision. Um, Without further ado, let's give it a listen. Again, I appreciate you tuning in. And if you like what you hear, please share it with friends, families, and, and leave us a rating. All right, let's dive right in. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to have, uh, we have a special guest, and it's Roland Kennedy. I'm so excited to have him on the show. Um, Roland, let's dive right in. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you discovered your passion. For sure. And just want to thank my brother, Fabrice, for having me on his incredible podcast. Um, You know, just excited to be here. So, yeah, just um, a little bit about me. Um, Represent North Philly all day. That's where I'm from. A New Yorker now by way of D.C. for the past uh, four and a half years, um, but fresh to New York, just about a year here. So uh, making my home in the philanthropy space, um, I've been working in philanthropy now for seven years prior to philanthropy. Uh, I was a legislative fellow um, in my home state of Pennsylvania in uh, the state house in Harrisburg, um, helping with um, Black economic justice issues, voting rights, um, all of that that really fueled uh, kind of what I'm doing today. That's amazing. And what would you say if you, like, is that sort of your passion, this, this, um, this vision for helping underrepresented visions and, and sort of getting people to rise out of their current situation now what would you say is your passion you know i'd say my passion is part of that but how I, how i would define my passion would be more so doing the work that allows people to feel like that they belong mm. to me that's what drives what i do um but the heart of what i do uh the end result that i always look for is you know, do the people that are impacted by the work that I'm doing feel like they belong to something bigger than themselves, you know, but also at the same time, knowing that in themselves that they are enough, um, mm-hmm. whether that's translated to access to the ballot, you know, ensuring voting rights for the largest number of people um, that I can, uh, making sure that there's representation across uh, newsrooms that look like uh, you know, full of people who look like me, making sure that the narrative is 
pro-black uh, pro and not anti-black. Um, and also making sure that our legislative bodies, both at the uh, local, state, and federal level, are representative of the, of the democracy that we also belong to as Black people. Uh, so that drives what I do. And the passion behind what I do, again, is just making sure that everyone feels that they belong, whether that's in my workplace or whether that's in uh, my home. That's my passion. That is absolutely powerful. I think this idea of embracing one's community and being an advocate and making sure, because I think there's so much that a lot of people don't see, and sometimes it just doesn't click for a lot of people. I love, sure. love to dive in into your work in philanthropy. Let's go. And, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> you so, have to dive into it. <laughs> and some of the like, some of the tensions that you've sort of seen with philanthropy. So I guess in my mind, philanthropy is you have a funder that is sitting on a lot of money and this with this amount of money they're trying to maximize impact or or they mm -hmm. sort of do, or do they have sort of a predetermined requirement of okay i'm going to give this amount of money and these are sort of the measuring of an evaluation impact that's going to lead like well, how would you define philanthropy and, and what sort of the tensions that you've seen uh, being uh, a black American in philanthropy today? Yeah, so I think in its simplest definition, I would define philanthropy as the business of doing good. You know, I, I call it the third sector. You know, uh, it's not government, it's not corporate, it's somewhere in between, you know. Uh, and, you know, to your point about, you know, you have a donor that typically has a lot of money that wants to give to at least one cause that will impact something, you know, and how do you measure that something and evaluate that something to see if that money that you put out actually did the thing that you intended it to do. You know, that's sort of philanthropy 101. But I would say, you know, there, there's two sides to it, right? You have the uh, institutional philanthropy, the, the old guard of philanthropy, which are the donors that you know, are dead and gone, who have left uh, a legacy of money, you know, endowments, we call them like the Ford Foundation or the Kellogg Foundation, you know, where there, there is no living person guiding the direction of those dollars. You know, it's guided by a board of directors um, and a, you know, executive, you know, C-suite group of people um, who, you know, are largely white, uh, with the exception of, you know, Ford Foundation, um, among others now that have black presidents, but still most of the C-suite are still very, very white, um, even if the presidents are starting to look more like America. <laughs> so, but then the side of America, uh, the, the side of philanthropy that I've worked on, um, I have never worked for an endowment. I have never worked for a Ford or a Kellogg. I have always worked with living donors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those who are still alive, who have a very distinct vision of what they want to change and what they care about. And the donors that I have worked for have all cared about democracy. Uh, that is a theme of my career because that's something I care about. I have always intended to work with those who also care about those issues. Um, among other issues that they that they fund, so so I think to to the first part of your question, that that's how I sum up philanthropy. You know, it is a business. It 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 is a business of giving. So it is not always so. So the the intents are charitable, but mm -hmm. there's still something that they want to see done. There's still a an outcome. You know, whether it's a 
a social outcome, whether it's an environmental outcome, an educational outcome, you know, it, it's all summed up to making sure that there's impact tied to those dollars. And that leads me into the second part of your question, you know, around the experience of being black in philanthropy is how do you ensure that the data is telling the story if the narrative that those who get to read the data and interpret the data haven't aligned with not being anti-black? Mm. And you have too many, I think, people in, in philanthropy who have not yet caught up with the skills of how to interpret data from the perspective and lived experiences of Black people, especially with the, the emerging trends of funding more Black-led work in philanthropy, especially in 2020. Um, you know, many different philanthropic organizations were starting to fund racial justice is the term that you typically would find um, in philanthropy, but I, I don't know if that's even right, you know, using that word justice, um, you know, but some call it racial equity or, you know, whatever the organization, you know, however they want to define that. But when we get to the heart of these words, you know, that it requires an empathy of having been, you know, in these communities, in, um, you know, working on the ground, you know, with various issues that affect Black America, that philanthropy, which is still a predominantly white uh, sector hasn't really caught up with. So my question is always, well, do we really know what we're funding? Are we just giving money because to meet the moment or are we giving money because we understand not only the moment, but the, but the historical context behind the moment. Mm -hmm. And that for me is what I'm always questioning and making sure that those who have the power to give understand the narratives behind what they are giving to and not just the organizations. Mm, that, that is so powerful what you're saying is because I, I find so much allusion to my native country in Haiti and sort of this, uh, the NGO industrial complex where yeah. there is, it's a, it's, there's a disaster that happens. It's in the news. It catches everyone's eyes. People are reassessing their funding and then, yeah. and then, funds go into these NGOs to go into Haiti to help. And then they sort of, in the heat of the moment, this sort of good intentions often mm. doesn't lead to the most constructive or productive because people don't have the context or the knowledge of what's happening exactly. around. Um, so I would love to sort of hear, like, what are some of the tensions that you mm. feel? Like, how can someone that is, let's say, from, let's say, middle class or upper class mm -hmm. in America who has a good will and has a lot of money and wants to be able to do a change, but might not have the access to live in it under like, uh, like a poor community where black folks have lived for the last hundred years. Like how can someone do that? And, or is it even, or is, is maybe that's not the sort of solution. Like, like, what does that inner work looks like? Not only for the funder, but also the black professional that's going into philanthropy and trying to be an advocate. Because I could, I could almost see like, if if the majority of it is a white space and you're there, yeah. Yeah. you're trying to make sure that the, the same problems that might happen don't happen because you might have that lens based on where you grew up. It, it might almost be tiring or to be sure. able to, to speak up and say something. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. And, and I think, you know, to start with, 
you know, the white people in the room. Um, you know, it's, it's my charge to anyone who is white working in philanthropy. And I say anyone, you know, you don't have to just be program staff because, you know, even if you're IT or your grant staff or your communication staff or strategy and learning staff, you know, you are still impacting the results of, of these grants. You know, you were touching, you know, the process at some point along the way and those that those dollars that are going out the door. So my thing is, even if you don't live in these communities, you know, there are opportunities to do something. There are opportunities to still go. There are opportunities to volunteer. There are opportunities to, um, you know, engage with your colleagues, your black colleagues in the organization and, you know, be invited, you know, into black communities, into black stories, into black spaces um, in a way where you are not going in to change anything. You are going in to be changed. And you do that by being open to those experiences, to those stories, to learn what it is about the Black experience in America that is so different from their own, and then understanding how that becomes contextualized in a philanthropic space. Mm. You know, how then can philanthropy really respond to what I'm learning? How, how then can we shift this model of maybe it's not just grant dollars, maybe we support capacity in these, in, in these communities, maybe it's hiring, maybe it's building out the technological infrastructure of these organizations, maybe it's not just money. What's the support beyond the check look like? You know, and so that's what I get to with with the white colleagues and and, and for the black colleagues, you know, it, it's it's certainly even it, it's not nearly as monolithic. Right. Because, you know, I've seen, you know, black professionals in philanthropy who come from, you know, very well off backgrounds, you know, and they feel the tensions, you know, in philanthropy talking about the issues, but then responding in a way that. Um, is more critical of Black-led organizations than maybe white-led organizations. Like, that's one of the key tensions. It's like, well, why are we asking more questions of this, you know, Black woman-led organization than we are with this white male-led organization? Like, shouldn't they get equal questioning? Shouldn't the due diligence be, you know, consistent? You know, but that's not the case. Um, and then you, you see that tension sometimes with the more, you know, with, with black staff who come from more um, prominent backgrounds, you know, economic, economically speaking. And, you know, they're, they're not always compelled to speak up, even though they feel that tension and they'll, they'll talk about it, but not in the right rooms. Right. And then you get someone like me, <laughs> you know, coming in from North Philly, but who also <laughs> has, you know, been educated in, in predominantly white spaces. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I've, I went to University of Pennsylvania, but again, North Philly really was the, the core of my upbringing. Mm -hmm. And so there's a duality there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where I'm like, okay, well, let's just say the thing, you know, let, let's just deal with it in real time. Mm -hmm. You know, like, why are we doing this to this Black woman-led organization? You know, are, are we saying that she doesn't know how to spend the funds properly because She's a black woman leading a nonprofit. Why wouldn't we say that of, of, of a white man? So, you know, and, and that is not one thing I've learned in seven years of working in philanthropy is that is not how business gets done. You never really call out the thing in real time. You go around it, you tiptoe it, you know, you dress it up in a, in a nice, you know, memo or press release and make it look good, but you still have to talk about the issue. And that's something that I think philanthropy still has a ways to go as a sector um to 
to become more truthful uh, in its engagement and um, future with funding black issues. Yeah, I think that's, that's so powerful. And I think what you're alluding to is, is indicative of, of any sort of form of systemic change is this idea that when you, when you have deep listening, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And Absolutely. You have to be able to have these tough conversations that a lot of people don't want to do that because it's like there's these social hierarchies in the workplace yep. and these yep. expectations that are not necessarily, I, I think those expectations may be the standards of procedures sort of prevent mm. us from addressing these things. I would, I would love to shift gear a little bit because I think sure. you mentioned a little bit, you talked about the future and mm -hmm. in and how it's important to really reimagine this future for black space yeah. and philanthropy but also the future of philanthropy so i would love to sort of get yeah. general ideas around what why is the, thinking about the future is important and or what are some of your ideas around the future of philanthropy or black futurism and, mm. and the context as it relates to what's happening in this country because we know yeah. For me, when I look at change, I look at it that it happens middle out, bottom up, top down. And mm. every sector, every industry sort of has a critical role to play. And we need a level of awareness and yeah. inside each of us to be able to carry out the mission for yeah. a better future. Um, so I would love to sort of hear your, your intuitions and, and visions around that as it relates to philanthropy in your own life. I love that question. Um, and what I'll first start with is another understanding about philanthropy, which is that philanthropy, unlike corporate, uh, has no clear bottom line. Mm. And unlike government, has no clear incentive structure. <laughs> and I note both of those uh, intentionally because that allows philanthropy to take charge of of its own future faster than corporate or government, which is part of going back to that original answer to your first question around the business of doing good. The business of doing good does not have to be the business of doing good slowly. You know, philanthropy is able to respond faster, you know, if we cut away some of that middle portion that you were just asking about, because the middle portion is, you know, why are we asking, you know, this, this 12 question application when we just need to get the money out the door? Why are we going through layers and hoops trying to figure out, you know, you know, how do we protect this investment? Well, you don't know. I mean, you're going to assume the risk, but in this type of, of world that we're in right now, dealing with a pandemic, dealing with, you know, a heightened uh, systematic racism, uh, we need to respond to the moment and we need to respond to it quickly. You know, the issues are in our face. And I think sometimes because philanthropy is dealing with so much complexity, or at least they, the sector thinks that it is, the common sense, the common in the clear isn't always clear, <laughs> you know, and, and it, there has to be some layer of complexity in there because we're always talking about complexity. So I think in looking to the future, I think philanthropy needs to let go of the word complexity more and hold on to the clear, hold on to what's right in front of their faces 
And maybe the problems have been so close for so long that they, that the sector just doesn't see it, you know, and actually to go forward, they might need to take one or two steps back to see the issues more clearly, to see them without rose colored glasses, to see them without the protections of billion dollar endowments and funds um, and be able to really get into the details of the communities in which they you know, are serving, but how to serve them better and better meaning uh, that, that there is a stronger, um, uh, like an enhance, enhanced listening to the communities that you are serving, right? That you are not just guessing, that you're not just going off of grant reports, that you are actually talking to and engaging with communities. And I think in terms of, you know, something else to the future that philanthropy can learn is, you know, philanthropy tends to operate on five-year cycles. So what's popular five years ago is not popular now. You know, what's popular in 2020 probably won't be popular in 2025. And I think philanthropy needs to let that go as well to have a broader 10-year window and not like five-year cycles. You know, racial justice is the thing to fund right now. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody posted on LinkedIn, you know, rapid response funding for, you know, COVID-19, you know, is, is the thing to do. You know, hopefully at some point this pandemic will be gone. Um, there will be other pandemics, unfortunately. You know, that, it, that will happen. You know, what are they? We don't know. There will be racial unrest, you know, because the United States of America has never reconciled with the very roots of racism that the country was founded on. Mm. Um, you know, whether through, you know, the Native American racism, whether through slavery, manifest destiny, I mean, it is in the core of this country. And philanthropy has a unique opportunity to respond to these issues, not just with money, in a one, two, or three-year grant cycle, but how about a five to 10-year grant cycle? How about giving organizations, you know, the support that they need for far, you know, and out years, trust the organizations that you are working with. You know, give $100,000 over 10 years instead of having an organization go through a renewal process that is wasting time, that's wasting impact, that's wasting resources, that's wasting staff time. You know, and I think, for racial justice in particular, philanthropy cannot afford to get tired of funding racial justice in five years. It can't afford to shift gears. Once it's in, it's in all the way. Because then, you know, the other thing is, you know, the primary critic of philanthropy is philanthropy. You know, and I, and I, <laughs> I think unlike other sectors like corporate and government, you know, where critics come from all sides, I think philanthropy has largely insulated itself from that. But I don't think that that will be sustainable moving into the next few years. I think that other sectors will start to become more critical of philanthropy, especially as more corporations decide to bring philanthropy in-house. You know, I think about, you know, what Nike is doing and Spotify and, you know, uh, Grubhub. I mean, all of these, I'm, I see these jobs popping up around social impact and, you know, community engagement. And, and all that means, all, all those words are just fancy words for philanthropy. 
mm-hmm. you know, and in, in the corporate in the corporate social responsibility context, which you don't see that word a lot, that word is also changing. Um, you know, and, and all that means is corporations are learning and adapting to what they want to do to also continue to build their brands, but how do they want to directly engage with communities as well and give? Like, what, how does that change the landscape of what institutional philanthropy has done for, for decades, you know, as, you know, corporations aren't looking you know, to the Ford Foundations, you know, any more about what to do. They are going to do it themselves. They are learning. They are adapting. So why isn't philanthropy doing that as well? Because we haven't gone outside of the four walls to really learn the communities that we're serving is, is the difference. And I think that is going to be key to engaging both Black communities, but also uh, future issues that will need rapid responses that philanthropy must adapt to in order to be relevant in the future, which is, you know, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's 10 years from now, that is something philanthropy has to do. Do you, do you feel like this is, yeah, I, I really like what you said about, you, we can't afford to get tired. This is something yep. that has to be on the pulse of yep. the, the changes that are happening in the planet because sometimes these systems create a life of their own and the bureaucracy right. And ends up being a violent process that prevents change and innovation. I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, is, is, are these things enough? Like, I, I, I have, mm. part of me is sort of a skeptic at some extent. Mm-hmm. I'm an optimist. <laughs> I believe that the future is going to get better and it's going yeah. to improve. Uh, but I almost feel that, like, philanthropy has existed for, like, I, I'm not sure how old the, the, the industry is. But mm-hmm. for the amount of time that has existed, has like, what sort of, okay, I guess the question is what sort of change can philanthropy engage when you throw money at, like, at an issue? Mm. You no, know, like, I know that change can happen and has happened, but it's like, what are the limits? What are the opportunities? What are the, 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 uh, the threats to, to this thing? Because I, I know you mentioned earlier around like how do we educate funders around the role that they play and what yeah. they can do as opposed to just sort of getting the flow of, of, of there. I, I guess I'm intrigued to find out in your perspective, like what are the limits of philanthropy and what are the, the opportunities and to sort of magnify the, the impact that it's having. Um, yeah. Because I think it is, a, it is a worthy endeavor and I think it is adding a lot of good in the yeah. planet, uh, but sometimes I get so disenfranchised when I see another black person get shot on the street, or yeah. maybe I, I I I just get so disgruntled or undocumented immigrants, or about to get uh, deported, or or the violence that happens systemically with different people. It's just maybe maybe it's maybe it's an affair of perception in the media. But I, I'm I'm wondering is how 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 can philanthropy magnify mm. impact? in in this this changing society that's that's skyrocketing the level of change is moving so fast yeah i i think you know the first thing that comes to mind is uh you mentioned um both limits and opportunities um to your question and i think in terms of the limits you know there are unfortunately you know policy limits uh to philanthropy you know uh foundations you know, cannot lobby, uh, you know, uh, at 
any level. They are, they are prohibited from lobbying. Uh, that would be great <laughs> if uh, foundations could do that. Um, but uh, there are, you know, arguments around personal benefits and, you know, how to ensure that, you know, philanthropic organizations aren't lobbying for their own good when they should be really spending money for the public good. So there's, there's limits there. But what philanthropy can do more, uh, the, the opportunity there is to fund more nonprofits, including both 501c3s and 501c4s, um, which are also nonprofits. I think sometimes when people hear the word nonprofit, um, they limit that word to just public charities, but that is not true. Um, the word nonprofit actually covers 25 different types of organizations, um, the most common of which is the public charity. That's what most nonprofits are chartered under the 501c3. But um, so I think, you know, as somebody that, you know, has worked in both government and philanthropy um, and also a corporate philanthropy, I, I, I recognize that real and I, and I use the word real intentionally, real societal change really does come through policy and communities uh, organizing together to push for those policies. And philanthropy can play a part in that, you know, it, but, it, but there's work that has to be done alongside government, but philanthropy should fund more organizations that are lobbying because public charities can lobby. Mm. 501c4s can lobby. And and philanthropic organizations can fund that work, even if they cannot do it themselves. So I think that, you know, philanthropic organizations need to stop being afraid to do that work because of fear of what the policy repercussions might be on the money that they put out there. It, there's more risk. And I think that is the fear of making sure that, well, what if this fails? You know, what if this multi-million dollar thing that we put money to doesn't pass? Or what if we put all this money to, you know, why thing and it also failed? Well, look, that's why the money is there. There, There is take more risk and get into the culture of policy change through philanthropy. And even I understand with 501c4s, there is no tax benefit. So what? If the 501c4 is best positioned to get the policy outcome for the people that you say you care about, then fund it anyway. You know, make it work for the people that you say you care about. So I think that's, you know, one challenge and opportunity there that philanthropy can do. Um, the bottom line is fund more policy related work. I think another thing to do um, that, that philanthropy should be able, should be doing more of um, is public-private partnerships. You know, I, I think working closely with cities, um, you know, with uh, whether it's mayors or whether it's, you know, other, you know, city officials to get work done for the largest number of people possible and also regional um, uh, public-private partnerships because that is something that, that philanthropic entities can do. You know, that is not, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I've seen enough of it to know that that is not, you know, against the rules, <laughs> you know, to do that, you know, and, and I think 
you know, when philanthropy gets so stuck in their grant agreements around, you know, you, this work can only be done under 501c3 public charity outcomes, this, that, and another, it's, it's very limiting, limiting to the work that needs to be done now. We're not living in a world where just funding 501c3 work is enough. We have to fund more C3 work, we have to fund more C4 work, we have to even fund more C6 work. You know, 501 C6s are civic leagues, action leagues. And get into that space, take on that risk, move deeper into the organizations that are working on these issues and, a, and they have a reach that philanthropic organizations don't. But the money can do the work, the money can reach those areas as long as you're investing in the right people. Philanthropy is really about placing investments in the right hands at the right time. It's responding to what is happening both in the moment, but also what should be happening in a strategic lens, looking out ahead. So, you know, if you are putting $100,000 in the right hands, that can go further than putting a million dollars in the wrong hands. You know, and legislative work sometimes does not always take a lot of money. It just takes the right person knowing how to navigate the halls of a legislative uh, of a state house or Congress or the executive branch in Washington, D.C. to get the thing done. That's really what this should be about. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it sounds like my answer is largely on the policy piece, because I, I do think to your question that it's where my energy is around you know, philanthropy's biggest fear is funding that work. And I've seen it time and time again of philanthropy funding so many other things except that. Mm. Would you say that there have been cases where it's failed um, or where things they've funded has not brought the impact? And I know that I I don't want to focus on negative, but I would be intrigued Yeah, your your thoughts around that. Um, Because I feel like there's all this sort of this quadrant of monitoring and evaluating <laughs> how do we, how yeah. do we evaluate impact? And I know, right? Sometimes that evaluation, I personally feel, can be very. Um, it can choke, like a oh, lot yeah. of like the the imagination of of what yeah. that impact can be. Um, so I'll be yeah. interested to hear your thoughts in that sense. I know. Tell me about it. And it's like <laughs> sometimes the evaluators are like, "Well, you know this." statistical n wasn't large enough maybe that's why it failed it's like no (laughs) that's clearly not why this thing failed it failed because you know we were afraid to invest in somebody that maybe we didn't know you know who knows how to do the work and you know you wanted to put the money in the hands of an organization that you knew but they didn't have a track record of actually doing this work but we asked them to do the work because we know them so i i think that's also would you call oh yeah so much so much so much of that you know and it's like but 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 the way that the failure is talked about is is not in in the nepotism you know it's talked about well the organization you know they said they knew how to do it and i guess they don't well you knew that from the beginning But maybe, you know, you should have gone to, you know, this powerhouse black woman over here who actually knows how to navigate, you know, Barbara Lee's office or knows how to navigate Maxine Waters office or, you know, knows how to, you know, do the work in, you know, the the state house in Arizona and Phoenix, you know, but because you didn't know them, you know, 
you didn't want to invest in them because you weren't sure how the money was going to be used. So, so I think, you know, in terms of failures, without getting into specific examples of places that I work, because, you know, I don't want nobody showing up on my front door. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I like to sleep peaceably at night. <laughs> so, you know, but, but I will say, you know, um, it, you know, skirting the line there, that that is something that, you know, I have seen you know, examples like that, um, especially when, you know, or, or, or just not asking enough questions up front, not asking enough critical questions. Um, you know, the why behind the why of that is, is it really who knows. Only the person, you know, who's ultimately responsible for the outcomes of the money could really know. But it's, it's, it's something along, along the lines of why didn't you ask that critical piece? You know, did you just not know to ask or did you just not want to ask? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the failure doesn't fall on the organization. Sometimes the failure falls on lack of communication, uh, which to me goes into um, a, a term that you hear a lot in philanthropy called trust-based philanthropy. Do the grantees that are receiving money actually trust the funders? Interesting. And do the funders actually trust the grantees? And trust comes down to how you communicate with each other. You know, is the communication clear? Is it open? Is it free flowing? Do, you know, do you have to have something scheduled in order to maintain that relationship? Or, you know, is, is the flow of information more fluid? Um, and that's not something that has traditionally been very strong in philanthropy, which I think has led to a number of failures. Would, would you say trust is fundamental to collaboration? Absolutely. Or, or maybe I'm leading on the question, but I, yeah. I think what you're saying is, is sort of the collaboration and the pillars of collaborating with other yes. minds and being on the equal footing and yes. being able to have a shared vision, a shared heart that can sort of have that impact. And sometimes mm -hmm. decision making table or the, the system itself is not, it's not a true collaboration. I agree. So I agree. Streak oftentimes. Yeah, and, and, I, and I like to use the word collaboration and not cooperation because I'm not convinced that trust is required for cooperation. I mean, you know, you and I both know, um, you know, especially you, you know, uh, you know, with a foreign policy background, you know, and, you know, me having more studied that but never having worked in foreign policy, you know, the word cooperation means something very different, you know, and a lot of countries don't necessarily trust each other, but they cooperate, you know, if, out of a means to an end. And, and I wouldn't say that, you know, uh, you know, actually, I, I would say, I should say, is, that, you know, many corporations and, and philanthropic relationships work the same way. You know, it's, it's like you, you want something from this relationship. You want something by having this said organization in your portfolio, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you trust them. When the trust comes into play to your question with the collaboration, that is what really drives the foundation for being innovative or having those ideas, you know, be stretched and be molded, be cultivated into um, strategies and guides to how you move systems forward. And systems are always changing, always shifting. They are never static. They are never the same. They change second by second. So if you don't have trust, how can you ensure that you are in step with the changes that are happening in those systems? 
you know, regardless of what those systems are, you know, system, big, big S systems, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that is something that philanthropy is behind on in relation to both corporate and government. Um, I think philanthropy is years behind corporate in that respect, actually. Uh, and I think it's, you know, maybe just a couple years behind that of government because, you know, some things in government are designed to be intentionally slow. Some things are designed to, you know, have a longer conversation, you know, than just to execute constantly every day, especially in the, on the legislative side. So, yeah, I, oh, yeah, I know, right? I mean, it's it's just like, you know, but philanthropy doesn't have those restrictions. So why operate that way? Um, so, so yeah. So I think, you know, trust-based philanthropy, I would love to see more of, but that also begs the question of why did we need that term in the first place? Mm. What is this telling us uh, about the relationships in philanthropy over the last, let's say 20 years that haven't been going well? Why do nonprofit partners not have a strong trust in the funders and do what they need to do to ensure funding keeps coming in? Um, because they have to, you know, they have to make sure that the organization survives. And that is not okay. Mm. That's not okay. I, I think you're so spot on with your variation of co- the, the, the distinction between cooperation and collaboration. It seems like cooperation is like, there's sort of this this it's sort of mutually beneficial <laughs> yep. person is or these groups or these nation states are going to be able to be aligned mm. with a common goal but yep. it doesn't necessarily mean that there is trust but i like what you said about trust and collaboration i i, I guess it because my thinking is i'm like i'm taking this even to a, a higher level because i'm looking mm-hmm. at philanthropy related to communities on the ground or corporate america related to communities on the ground or different Mm-hmm. social classes connected to different social classes in the history of slavery, all these different mm. systems and groups of people and bodies of, of, of organization and how yeah. there is not necess- there is not a trust. There's not trust. Um, no. amongst, um, or sort of within these groups of, of people and things. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering for you, like, what does it take to build trust? Like what, what is, what are some of the, Maybe what are some of the steps for you that you've taken that that has allowed you to begin to trust? Or maybe, maybe trust, mm. maybe, because I almost see, uh, the way I'm looking at this is also sometimes when I give my trust to something or someone, it's almost, it's like my, my life is on the line sometimes. So it's like, is trust the ideal, like, pathway to create a better system? It, because wow. sometimes that, the power structures can abuse me or or a group of people based on on just giving that trust initially so i'm wondering like like to even deconstruct what trust means because i think that's so fundamental i think that's something that a lot of people like how do people even begin to build this very meaningful trust um (laughs) <laughs> this might have to be a brown liquor and cigar type of conversation <laughs> we might have to rename this podcast episode <laughs> for that conversation but man uh mm, that, you know I, that is a hard that's that is a hard question and, and i what i'm what i'm led to and and you know what not even just philanthropy but you know let, let's just tackle that 
you know, overall, because I, I think, you know, trust is an equalizer, right? <clears throat> um, I, and, I, and I think in pictures often more than I think in words. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about trust that is always interesting to me is that if you have a glass bottle and you drop it, um, let's say hypothetically that that glass bottle breaks into two pieces, you know, that those two pieces can be mended back together. Mm. Um, the bottle is never going to look the same. It might function the same, but there's always going to be evidence that there was a break, mm. you know? And, but let's say on the other side of that, that, it, that there's something worse, you know, that, you know, the bottle drops or is dropped, <laughs> you know, or falls and shatters, doesn't just break. And now you have little pieces of that bottle, you know, big and little mid-sized pieces all over the place. And you do your best to mend it all back together, but there's always going to be something missing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's, there's even more evidence of brokenness um, on that bottle. To me, that's what a lack of trust and a break in confidence amongst one's trust really looks like is that, you know, love is so much more mendable. You know, I know we lost Congressman John Lewis this year who always talked about love, you know, and nobody has been, uh, you know, who was in Congress had been broken, you know, and had, you know, had experienced those shattered, you know, trust moments, you know, especially in the relationship among white America and his own peers than Congressman John Lewis. And, you know, I think about how often he talked about love, which is mendable, which is pliable, which is connective. Um, but trust is more like steel. You know, trust is, is a lot more sure and, re- and requires more surety to me. So even though you have all that evidence of the brokenness, you just know that nothing can ever really be the same again. You know, even if the function is working. <laughs> you know, so just be so. So the point is, just because something is working well doesn't mean that there wasn't brokenness in that system. Doesn't mean that there wasn't um, a time when a complete lack of trust re- required a a fixing of that system. And philanthropy is not exempt from that because philanthropy really was not created for black people. Mm. You know, philanthropy was created for white people to have a tax incentive for to hide their money. It was never about systematic change. <laughs> you know, that is a newer phenomenon that, you know, there, and, and even when that came about, black people were largely excluded from the conversation. The idea of even funding black led work is, is only about as old as the new millennium. Wow. You know, so really. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is not a, a, a decades, I mean, it, it is technically now, but it's not institu- like institutionally, it doesn't go way back, you know. You know, the only people who were really funding Black-led work, you know, in the, in the model of philanthropy that we know today were, to no surprise, other Black people who had the means to do so. Madam C.J. Walker being one of those people. If you uh, think about, uh, there's a, a book, I'm, the author's name is escaping me, um, but you know, this gentleman wrote about 
the philanthropy of Madam C.J. Walker and what drove it, what motivated it, how she identified, you know, funding anti-lynching efforts in her time, funding the arts, funding education, funding uh, travel grants to make sure that young Black women could study in an entrepreneurial setting. So, so I mean, largely, when I think about trust, it, it, I see more, I, I see the future really of black philanthropy being in the hands of more black people, mm. you know, and it doesn't have to be because there are what six black billionaires in, in America. It's certainly not, you know, when you think about the what 300 or so billionaires in this country and only six are black, that also brings up a conversation, right? Wow. It's like, well, there's also inequality there and we're talking about billionaires, which is bananas. But, and even among those billionaires, you know, the net worth averages between one to 5 billion versus the 10 to 60 or upwards of a hundred if you're a Jeff Bezos of billionaires. So even the black billionaires are not the richest you know, of billionaires. So ca there's also a capital conversation to be had, but you also have an, a, a, a growth of pooled funds and community funds where wealthy black people and couples, individuals as well, are coming together to pool their, their money to fund issues in their communities to fund education, to fund scholarships, to fund community health work, because they know the issues that are impacting them. You know, do they have the billions of a Ford Foundation or, you know, an individual, you know, some individual billionaire? Not necessarily. But when you come together to fund the need of your community, do you need all that? Not, not really, you know, because you know where that money can go. So I really see a scaling of that across Philly, across Detroit, across Charlotte, across Atlanta, you know, because I'm gonna tell you, and I'm gonna call out their name, you know, <laughs> the, the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta, I remember asking them a question two, three years ago at a conference and I said, well, I said, you are located in the heart of black wealth in America. You know, I've repped DC all day. I still miss DC, DC is home and I know for those who might be listening to the podcast, that yes, D.C. is the premier area of, of Black wealth in America, I, I know. But I mentioned Atlanta, too, explicitly because it's right on the line. And Atlanta also is the most inequitable city in America, too. You know, so I asked them, I said, you know, are you engaging, you know, the Black, the, the, the black wealthy community in Atlanta in your programs? And the person who responded to me said, no, we haven't gotten there yet, but it is something that we are thinking about. And I said, you know, I said, that is part of the problem. <laughs> so it's not really, it's, it, you know what, you know, Fabrice, it's not even just about the money. Mm. You know, it's about access to the conversation. Mm. It's about do, going back to, to the question to, you know, the theme about trust, it's about are, are, you know, especially black and white communities, even among wealthy black and white communities, have we arrived yet to even have that conversation with each other? Wow. We can't even have a conversation about how to pool our funding together, you know, for community engagement. And we might even have the same net worth, but we're not invited to the same table. Mm. We are in the same community, but we can't have the same conversation together 
outside of some, you know, fundraising event where we have to pretend to like each other just to get a check, you know, to some institution, but, you know, that you might not even have a relationship with. So, so I say that in order to have trust, you need to be trustworthy. And an example like that of the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta, you know, that to me is not an example of trustworthiness to even if you are invited to the table, well, why are you inviting me to the table now? <laughs> why didn't you invite me to the table up front when the conversations were happening early? You know, so, so and, and I think the core ingredient of being trustworthy is being authentic. And unfortunately, especially across race relations in this country, authenticity is an ingredient that is so rare. That is a commodity that is hard to find. Um, and black people know that. You know, we know that more than any other demographic of, of people in this country. And I think that is something that, you know, is in some respects is getting better. Um, but I would not go as far to say as, you know, the racism in that context of, of trust and trustworthiness is getting better because, you know, we're still dealing with these issues, you know, 2020, you know, <laughs> being a key example of that. So that, that would be my answer to the, to the trust question and, and how it impacts, I think, um, going back to philanthropy as well. No, I think that is quite powerful. The, the story that you gave that even within the black community, there are divisions, there are tensions. And I feel like those are sort of the legacies of, of the past. Yes. Sort of divide and conquer and this sort of, yeah, I, that, that is unfortunate. And, 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 I, and I feel that is definitely coming against that innovative process that, we, that must be taken. And I love the reflection that you talked about authenticity. I almost feel like, mm there's this idea of like branding is sort of replace authenticity. It's sort of like <laughs> you almost have to commodify your, who you are and, and right. it deprives you of all the complexity and the nuances of your sort of thinking. And you all mm -hmm. have to follow these little levers to, to show up in these spaces as opposed to really being authentic, being open and having that true yeah. uh, meaningful uh, collaboration. I think what, what intrigues the most <laughs> was that you you spoke that i was that was extremely shocking i did not know that the the idea of of black philanthropy and mm. this that this is some like funding black projects black led organizations and and those communities that is sort of a recent phenomenon in terms of within yeah. the industry of philanthropy i did not know that i think that yeah. is, that is I think that is startling, but also I, I feel that I, it brings a level of optimism in me that we haven't, the best is yet to come, I would say, in terms sure. of like the industry I think so. is, is sort of evolving. So, and, and I, I guess I would love to hear your sort of, like, why is a black, a vision of, of America, a vision of the future that is inclusive, that includes mm -hmm. black visionaries or, or 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 black thinkers or black futurists like why why do you think that's so fundamental in, in this stage of philanthropy or in the broader stage of where we're headed in the next 25 years um yeah i would say one the, the united states cannot afford not to uh uh cultivate you know inclusivity 
for Black Americans. One thing, we, we have always been innovative people. When you get out of our way, when you remove barriers, when you remove systematic strongholds and, you know, the iron bars, you know, uh, I believe, I think it was, a, you know, Marcus Garvey, I think, who used that term, um, you know, of oppression, you know, you get the most creative and innovative and spatial thinking people in the world, you know, Black people. And we are going to build wherever we are. We are going to create, you know, in whatever capacity we are put in, whatever uh, community, corporation, institution that we arrive in, we are going to expand it because that's what we do, you know. And I think that, and, and, and that also draws revenue. <laughs> There's the bottom line there too for those that just care about the numbers. I'm like, okay, well, if you care about the numbers, then create more opportunities for Black people. And yes, philanthropy does have a, a role to play in that, you know, um, whether it's working alongside you know, financial institutions, whether it's shoring up, you know, resources for, you know, more HBCU funding, which I'm a big proponent of, uh, you know, redesigning what a bachelor's and master's degree program or, or combined program really looks like that serves the needs of, you know, the, the next generation of Black people um, to, to, for self-exploration uh, self as well and self um, idealization too, which is really giving more black people a sense of empowerment to take control over their own learning, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not be so static. Uh, and, and, you know, you're going to do a bachelor's in accounting or you're going to do, you know, uh, you know, BS in finance, like, oh, okay, that's great. But what about critical? You know, critical thinking is still the number one skill required across every decade. That has not changed in 50 years. And why is that? <laughs> um, because I think that it's largely given that there are so many barriers still across sectors, across systems, across disciplines, that you need to break down those walls between those three topics mm. and really get a sense of critical means that not only are you asking questions of yourselves, the institutions and the systems that you're placed in, but you're also challenging them. You're also pushing those assumptions. You're also testing them daily. You're trying to break them, mm. you know, and now black people, uh, well, I'm not in a blanket statement, but a lot of black people in across corporate philanthropy and government are still having to ask permission to do that. Mm. And it's like, well, why do we still have to be the ones to ask permission to be our best selves, which are creators and innovators? So, I so I think that yes, that you know, philanthropy. Yeah, but that's who we are. And you know, going back again to that sense of belonging, that's part of making sure that any body black, you know, young my my generation or older that it's always a conversation around do you know who you are do you know what you carry do you know what you bring to the tables that you built or the tables that were already built that you showed up at and are you taking up space in this moment are you challenging yourself and others in this space to not only be their best selves but do they know who you are at the end of this day mm. you know are they thinking about the innovation and creativity that you brought to the conversation you know, and so that is the goal, 
you know, that then going back to that word passion, because largely we are a, a storytelling people. You know, we are a passionate people. We uh, often are driven by passion, um, you know, and it's something that is culturally innate. You know, even though Black people are not monolithic, that is something that is a thread that connects us, mm. you know, is the, is the power of a strong, passionate story. Every, every Black person, you can't, you can't, and I, I say that word every intentionally, you know, has a story of some type, you know, whether it's your own, whether it's from family, whether it's, you know, there's, there's some connective thread of that, that, you know, really underwrites, you know, the power of who we are. And I think what philanthropy can do in that respect is on more Black-led work related to the future of work, related to, you know, um, data infrastructure, related to more um, STEM fields, related, again, to the HBCUs um, ensuring, and not just the big six, you know, we know Howard can get money, we know Hampton, we know Spelman, we know Morehouse, but there's others too. You know, um, like all what, um, 97 or so uh, HBCUs in this country need funding, you know, and they serve their communities in which they are in, in where they are. So, you know, I, I think that once the system stop limiting who black people are and what we are capable of doing, um, and where we don't have to constantly feel like we need to prove ourselves to these systems that were never designed for us in the first place, but we've adapted to learning how to deal with them. Um, then I think you see a future, a black, uh, a black futurist innovative model, <laughs> right? That gives us trillion, an extra trillion dollars in our economy, right? Because we are a trillion dollar people. Um, and I think that that goes beyond the billions that philanthropy can put into it. That's just the billions that we invest into black people that then yield a much larger return on investment. Because when you invest in black people, you invest in community. And when you invest in community, then you invest in a system that will then underwrite the individuals, yeah. you know, whereas the white systems are largely individualistic first, but that's not how the black, the, the black, uh, uh, model typically works. So that would be my charge to all three systems, the government, philanthropy, and corporate. But since I know philanthropy best, I would say philanthropy also has to take charge and fund not only more organizations, but fund more money, you know, to this work. You know, don't be afraid to fund over a hundred million dollars in this, you know, you, you know, the hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand dollar check is not going to cut it now. Mm. I, uh, I think everything you've said is, is so powerful. It's, it's so true. I, I, I'm, I do believe that there is an innate creativity that is inherent to people of African descent and in a world that at some point they were products that they were being sold. And I feel like mm. I'm reminded of this quote by uh, Greg Tate, who's an essayist mm -hmm. here. And he talks about how African descent people have survived, transcended, transmuted, and transmuted mm. their horrible American experience. Wow. Um, but, and, but I feel like, I think all of what you say resonates so deeply in me. But part of me also notices that there are, there are going to be people where this is not going to connect. Um, mm -hmm. This is not going to connect. And, and I think in this lack of disconnection, it 
it that is also perpetuating this this culture of asking for permission and or in their imagination that society has sort of given them they yeah. they don't see that potential and they don't understand that mm. the, the troubles and the worries or the history of of the black experience and how it's led today and the inequities and the the challenges mm. that we still have to go through um so I guess this is some of my final questions and I'll have one more after this, but this yeah. is great. Like how, how can people start to connect with this? Cause I feel like, mm. cause I feel like I know, I do feel like for me, like as an immigrant coming to the U S and, mm. and experiencing the black experience, like discovering I'm black for the first time. Um, I feel like I've, I've had to try like 20 times harder than my peers. And maybe I might still fall short. Um, because of those sort of, those starters, but I'm wondering, it's like, what, like, what can, like, how can people connect to this sort of, this experience that people of African descent have, have undergone? Because I feel that disconnection and, and people not being able to connect and their imagination being limited or, or even being prescribed by society and what, what minorities can be or cannot be. Mm possible to them even if they know it's well intentioned but subconsciously like this they, st- they still like what can what can people do like what can we how do we react to that because i feel like the imagination has so much to play in that role i don't mm. know what can people do to to interrogate this disconnection of not really understanding what it means to be black or because yeah I, it's a big question but i love to hear your is <laughs> yeah and 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 i think you know two the two words of course that stood out most to me were interrogation and connection because you know i think as you know i think the larger disconnect you know to be very frank is you know white people trying to understand the conversation <laughs> you know it's like okay well like this all sounds really good but you know, I'm not black. I don't understand the experience of how it is to be black. I, I want to do better. And I do believe that, that there are, you know, um, many of our white peers that do. And I would first go back to that word connection is what are the barriers to connection? You know, and what are the blockages, you know, in the ears and the eyes that inhibit connecting? And one of the things that I even had to do um, a couple of weeks ago in a, in a conversation is just really shift gears and say, you know what, I'm like, I don't know if we've yet reached um, a place where we are all hearing each other. You know, we've had these meetings now for two months and, and I don't know, and we're still not hearing. So let, let's reset here for a second. And, you know, I had to actually tell the white people on the call that, Nobody is going to call you racist for being wrong. No one is going to charge you for not crossing your T or dotting every I because I don't expect you to know everything you need to know in this moment. My expectation of you is that you are continuing to ask the questions. My expectation and hope of you is that you continue to do that, that you don't get tired you know, after a week (laughs) or two of asking these questions, because these are things that black people have to ask every day. You know, we have to 
you know, typically as black people negotiate how much of our whole selves we even want to bring into the workplace on a daily basis, let alone have the audacity to just show up with, you know, this mindset that we are privileged to, you know, have it all. <laughs> we don't have that luxury. You know, we have to take it and be rebellious by force and when we show up to the various institutions that we work in. So I think in terms of connecting, that's the story. You know, it's the story of arriving in space that is predominantly white and then having to um, address the elephant in the room, you know, which is handled by the white people and say, you know, these are the conversations that we need to have now. And just because we are having these conversations doesn't mean that you are racist, but you also have to understand that, yes, white people do have racist bones in their body. And you have to first acknowledge that, you know? I mean, the, the, the key to breaking any pattern that is adverse to growth and connection is to tell the truth. <laughs> you know, you can't move forward without it. And, and, and part of telling truth is acknowledgement that, you know what, as a white person, I do have racist bones in my body. Just do it. Just do it once. <laughs> Let it flow. Feel, feel, feel that, you know, sit in it, stand in it, whatever you want to do, you know, go walk out, go walk around the block, whatever your method may be, but acknowledge it first, get it out. And then let's open up the conversation. What did that bring up? How did that, how did that come up for you? You know, are you thinking about you? Are you thinking about your parents, your grandparents, how you grew up? Like, like what is it that we need to talk about to build a stronger connection? Because we are all connected regardless, but a stronger connection requires that deeper level of engagement. It requires vulnerability. It requires us to go to levels that you have to let people in. You know, and I don't think that, you know, that level of vulnerability, because so many of us are so guarded, you know, and, it, and it's great that this conversation has tied so many of the themes together, like around trust and belonging, because that's largely what that comes down to as well, is, you know, it's not only I, I could trust you, but I don't want to trust you. Or if I trust you with this information, you might use it against me. There, there, there's so much still unpack before we even get to the level of stronger and deeper connection that yeah. just coexisting in the same office or the same home or whatever is, is not enough oh good yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah L literally for 400 years in the same country and we're still we're still not there mm. wow this is roland this has been absolutely astounding i I, your your wisdom, your knowledge of philanthropy. I, I'm 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 so much more aware of like this industry. I, I was I didn't. Wow. Nice. I, I appreciate you coming on the show. I have one last question. Please, bro. Um, is and I ask all the guests that question is what mm -hmm. is one idea that you think is going to like what one idea that is critical that you think is going to shape the next 20, 25 years that you would like to share with the viewers like that you think people need to be paying attention to one idea. It could be something that we talked about or it could be something completely different. Yeah, I'll go with something completely different. I, I think, um, how do we mobilize 
um, how do I want to frame it? How do we mobilize um, sustainable conservation efforts? I, I think is something that's weighed on my mind as I think about, you know, what's happening in the Arctic with the fires, what's happening on the West coast of the United States with the fire and it's the fires and among other climate issues, which to me is the, the issue really of our time. Um, the most immediate issue is climate. And I, I think that, you know, the clock, <laughs> the, the, the seven-year time clock that they put up here in New York, uh, which is not great to have, be constantly reminded every day <laughs> of that there's a doomsday clock ticking in the middle of New York City. Um, but, you know, I think that it's not radical anymore to have to think about this. I think that, you know, all generations, not just the next generation, I don't like to use that talking point with climate. I think... Yeah. that we all have to do what we need to do now um make the choices make the make the sacrifices to ensure that you know we get our climate to a place that you know is is before a no a a point of no return um it, this doesn't just impact you know us this impacts everybody Absolutely. you know and we are literally all in this together. And so, you know, I think, you know, the, the term I use, mobilizing sustainable conservation efforts, um, is, you know, the idea that should be at the forefront of everybody's minds right now. And realizing that, you know, the, the year that we've had, I mean, 2020 started with Australia being on fire. Mm. You know, the, these are, are, are things that aren't just going to miraculously go away. We have to do the work, um, you know, and, and create, you know, new technologies and, and structures, systems and whatnot to address these issues, to do our best to cool our planet, to make sure that, you know, our transportation and our infrastructure is adapting and meeting the moment, you know, which is right now. It's not, you know, five, 10, 20 years down the road. It's right now. Um, you know, so I think the commitments to, you know, some countries committing to carbon neutrality by 2035 or 2060, it's not enough. Why the years keep changing, yeah. you know, we, we have to do something <laughs> right now. Yeah. So I, I think that's the pressure and, um, the radical, uh, you know, idea that, uh, you know, I would say is most pressing, um, on my mind. Um, so, I think yeah. I think that's that's quite a powerful message. I, I I feel it. It's I, I think people tend to forget that we live on a planet that is just a tiny speck in a vast galaxy, and like we're all in this spaceship traveling, and we have to take care of that planet, and our actions play a role. And I think to tie it back to our conversation around philanthropy and trust and and togetherness and belonging, I think there's a lot of issues that are sort of historical in these legacies that are sort of preventing us from coming together to address yes. bigger cosmic problems. Um, Roland, this has been quite a treat. I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and your passion uh, with us, me and the viewers. I think this is phenomenal. Is there, is there a way that the uh, viewers can reach you? Are you on Twitter or LinkedIn? Um, 
Yeah, I, I am. And, and first, let me also say thank you. Um, you know, my friend, my brother for inviting me on your podcast. You know, it, it is always a treat to speak with you. As you know, I've told you many times before. Um, but yeah, my Twitter is just my name, you know, Roland Kennedy Jr. Um, all letters, no punctuation. Um, you know, feel free to follow me there. It's um, pretty clear what I like. I put politics, uh, <laughs> philanthropy, advocacy, civil rights. So, you know, that's my thing. That's what you'll see. Um, so yeah, feel free to follow me there. Super. Well, Roland, again, it's, I, I appreciate it. And all, likewise as well, it's always great speaking with you and and trying to figure out ways we can make this this country and this world a better place. So uh, I appreciate sure. it. And thank you for being here. Of course, bro. Thank you again. Thank you. Again, thank you for tuning in to the Fabrice Carrier Show. I hope you enjoyed this very dynamic and thought-provoking conversation. And yeah, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed this, definitely share this with colleagues, friends, family. And yeah, and let's keep the conversation going. I think there is a lot happening in the planet right now. And, and this is something that I deeply enjoy and to do. So if you have any ideas and comments, please don't be afraid to reach out to me. And thank you again. <laughs>